Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. <laughs> we'll make it work. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers podcast. My special guest today is Paul Andriola. He's the founder and editor at Small Cap Discoveries, and he's currently number one in the Micro Cap Club. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Paul. How are you? Tobias, I'm doing great. Doing great. Congratulations, first of all, on uh, on climbing to the top of those rankings. I had... The last person I had on was Marge Sway, Dan. And yeah. Before I got him on, you'd already taken his place. So I always have to ask him to start. Are you still number one? I am. I think I, I yeah, I, I maintained it for a couple months here. So we'll see. You'll, you'll probably have a new guest next month. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. It's highly competitive. It seems to turn it is. pretty regularly. It is. Yeah, well, that's the nature of the microcap uh, business, right? Uh, uh, what is it? Penthouse one time and outhouse uh, the next time, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, value investing, being in the outhouse for a long time. I haven't been to the penthouse for quite a long time. <laughs> You'll get there. Just keep keep hanging on. Uh, yeah. uh, it, it happened like a few, uh, like more than a decade ago now, but it's it's been a, it's been a long, it's been a long time between drinks for deep value guys. Um, so tell me a little bit about small cap discoveries. Uh, so uh, what we what we have is uh, it's uh, it's a hybrid between a newsletter and uh, a bit of an investors club. Um, what we do is we're trying to find those anomalies in the the micro cap. I'd even say nano cap market. Um, what we try to do is really find these odd little companies um, based solely in Canada. Right now, all we do is we look for uh, sort of scrounge around the Canadian public markets and try to find companies that fit the criteria that, that I sort of used over the last uh, 25, 30 years in finding these, um, you know, they call them 10 baggers, 100 baggers, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, companies that um, typically go undiscovered for years. And then for whatever reason, something starts to happen, uh, they become discovered. And with a little bit of luck, you know, they turn into, uh, you know, pretty good investment wins. So, so what do you mean? So uh, a number of things, um, you know, we sort of use the, the, the a bit of the GARP principle where we're trying to find growth companies, um, but really at, at early, early stages. So, you know, right at um, some some form of inflection point, um, you know, one of the key things we look for is companies that are growing at least 25 percent uh, per year or greater uh, from a uh, revenue basis and, and on a per share basis, which is important. Um, so we're trying to find these hyper growth companies that actually have some real fundamentals behind them, um, you know, profitability or at least some real visibility to profitability. 
and um, and we're trying to find them before sort of the the, the industry or the market finds them. Um, so we we've got this uh, sort of checklist that we use that um, we uh, you know we sort of uh, ideally a company will check off most of the boxes, and if it does, uh, and we're fortunate enough to hold on to some of these, then they turn out to be pretty significant winners. What's uh, on your checklist? Uh, well, like I said, revenue growth is is the first thing we screen for. Um, uh, Profitability. Time just before you over what kind of three four well, years or... Yeah, so the the more the better. Um, typically, what really I mean, we're measuring year over year. So if we see a company come out with a quarterly statement that shows that revenues have grown fifty percent over the same period last year, that that starts to get us interested. Um, over and above that, if it's been doing that for several years and all the other, you know, sort of criteria still still fits our our list, then um, that that gets us even more excited. So, uh, you know, a, a good example and one that 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 um, has really worked out for us was a company called uh, Expel Technologies, which um, had actually had probably eight or nine quarters of just fantastic growth. And yet the stock had never really gone anywhere. So we were fortunate enough to capture that early enough where. Um, you know, it had these back-to-back quarters and, uh, and then, you know, turned out, literally turned out to be a hundred bagger from where we started buying it. Oh, that's amazing. I think I've had a few small and micro cap guys. I think Connor Haley also had a position in Expel. So when, when did mm-hmm. you, when did you discover that and how did that, how did that play out? So we, uh, well, I discovered it when it was, uh, roughly about 17 to 20 cents. Um, I think now last I looked at it and I've since sold it, but, um, I think it's trading around 15 or $16. Wow. That would have been five years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but uh, it, it was it was early on for sure. Is that is that a Canadian company? Is it, Are you looking at only, you're exclusively Canadian? Well, exclusively Canadian listed. So Expel actually used to be listed in Canada. Um, there's a number of companies uh, down the States that'll come up here and list because of the, the structure of the sort of the IPO market here. Um, yeah, so that was one uh, headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, um, but listed here had sort of toiled in obscurity up here for years, um, and it just you know kept growing its business and uh, and then eventually left the Canadian market. And now it's exclusively trading down in the states. So they um, they they can be U.S. companies, and they're taking advantage of that lower listing standards. Are they going onto the Toronto venture or something like that, or are they on the main board? <laughs> Yeah, so TSX Venture, yeah, is the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture um, sort of component. Um, I would argue actually that the the listing requirements themselves are about as onerous as, as any in the world. It's just the um, uh, sort of the, the the way the industry is set up here. I think it's more conducive to funding like very very early stage companies, and I think that was the the big draw for for a while. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know they're, they're scrutinized the same as any other company. Um, but um, yeah, the TSX Ventures, I think what you you're asking, that's that's right. So the idea is that rather than raising venture capital, say you go and you can get a more distributed shareholder base by listing in Canada. I'm, I'm familiar with that a little bit because it's a similar process in Australia. I think they can get listed. They tend mm-hmm. to list at an earlier stage. There's just there's a there's a less um, mature maybe venture capital market there, so they tend to be uh, they tend to list at an earlier stage. You're, you're dead right. That's exactly it. So um, I've often said that. I've actually uh, worked with the TSX Venture Exchange and doing a lot of uh, roadshows to try to entice companies to come up here and list. 
And that's just it. They're, they're really, you know, an early stage company has got a couple options and one is, you know, venture capital. Um, I think what's happening now more with venture capital is they're looking for the next unicorn. So it's less likely to, to you know, you're less likely to get funding from one of these big VCs. Um, and if you don't meet that benchmark, you're sort of left to struggle and try to find, you know, angel investors. And uh, the, the TSX Venture Exchange is sort of that, uh, um, you know, secondary option. Um, but it, that, that being said as well, the venture capital market in Canada up until a few years ago, I would have said is extremely immature, not really able to properly fund a lot of these companies. So the, the TSX Venture was really the only option, especially for a Canadian listed company to to get any kind of capital that they really needed. Yeah. And that venture capital money, there's a lot of fish hooks in it that you got to grow at a really rapid yeah. rate to hold on to your, your equity in those uh, when you take that on. Well, that's that's true. And the other issue, too, is if you if you have any sort of stumble, um, that's when it, it gets really dangerous where, you know, if, if you're publicly listed, um, you I mean, you've got some capital and it's typically distributed capital. So there's not one person or one group that says, OK, because you didn't hit your, your benchmarks this quarter, you're going to you know, you're ratcheting back. Exactly. So um, uh, th there's there's some real viable reasons why it makes a lot of sense for some of these uh, startup companies. So what's your background? You've been doing this for two or three decades. You said, what, what uh, were you doing before you were writing the newsletter? How long have you been writing the newsletter? Uh, the newsletter itself, I, th I think it's about eight or nine years. Um, prior to that, I mean, I've, I've got no formal education in the investment uh, arena. I, I studied uh, construction management uh, back in the early 20s. Um, but I'd always had a um, passion for, for investing. Yeah, I, I bought my first uh, piece of real estate, I think, when I was 18, 19 years old. Um, I bought my first stock, I think I was 19 years old, um, but uh, no, no formal background there. Um, it, it really was a trial by fire or, you know, school of hard knocks. Um, that being said, I, I actually worked in the construction industry for about uh, seven or eight years, um, found that I really hated it. <laughs> so um, went to sort of my, you know, back to my hobby, which was investing. I, um, you know, probably my, when I was 17, 18 years old, um, I, I pretty well read every book you could imagine that was available at the time uh, on investing. And uh, started dabbling and and doing okay, Not, nothing crazy, but um, really learning early, you know, some of the some of the issues. And then what happened was, um, you know, eight eight years into construction and just breaking my back and and sort of hating, you know, hating going getting up in the morning to go to work. Um, my wife at the time um, had said, you know, look, you're 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 miserable. You find something else to do. <laughs> <laughs> so what I decided to do is uh, I, I quit my job and I, um, you know, at the time, you know, the internet was finally out there and I, I started, I wouldn't say day trading, but I started investing and using some of the tools that I'd learned from different books. And there were certain books that really stood out for me, um, you know, started using those tools and started investing on my own. And then, um, and then there's a couple events that sort of triggered some real changes in, in, in what I was doing. And um, most of them were books. Um, I remember reading um, William O'Neill's uh, um, uh, How to Make Money in, in Stocks. Is and Cancelim, exactly, Cancelim. Uh, prior to that, I'd be going you know, down the library. I'd try to... Um, you know, review company filings and, and not even not having a clue what I was doing, really. I was just trying to find companies and 
investing in, in some idea that I thought just sounded good. Um, but when, um, as a matter of fact, the reason I even found out about CamSlim was um, I had I'd, uh, entered a stock picking contest. And there was probably easily a thousand people are in this contest. And um, I think the prize was a hundred thousand dollar portfolio. This, you know, this bank owned brokerage firm was going to give whoever the winner was a hundred thousand dollars. So of course that was incentive for me to jump in there. Um, but, uh, and you know, I, I think over the course of the six months, cause relatively short contest over six months, I came in like 56th or something like that out of a thousand, which I thought was impressive. But the guy who came in first, just blew everybody out of the water. Like second place wasn't even close. So they interviewed him and, and he said, well, I just, I, I had a little strategy and they, they said, what's the strategy? And he said, well, literally all I did was I, I bought whatever stock was hitting a 52 week high and it was trading close to a dollar. And then they would ask him, and then what? And he goes, no, that was it. That was it. Right. And I go, what? I mean, I did all this hard work and, and, you know, I studied and did this and this, that. And then the guy said, well, it was based on a principle that he learned out of Canceling, which if you know Canceling, you know, the 52-week high uh, is, is a critical component, which blew my mind because it was always, for me, it was prior to that, it was, um, you know, you're going to buy something cheap, right? You don't go and buy something expensive. It just doesn't make any sense. So I read the book. I re probably read it over three or four times. And I said, okay, well, this sounds crazy, but I'm going to try it, right? And lo and behold, I started, started trying it. And the performance of my portfolio just went crazy. It, it literally went from maybe, you know, averaging, you know, 10 to 15% a year to like 100%, 120%, right? So I go, okay, something's going on here. Um, but uh, because I was, you know, I'm, I'm based in Canada, basically I've studied the Canadian market. Um, I tried to tailor it a little bit to the Canadian market. There, there's some nuances in Canada, it's a little bit different in the U.S. Uh, stocks typically trade at a lower sort of price point, um, there's different stock structures, you know, um, there's not as many micro cap funds, things like that. So I started to understand the industry a little bit more and, and started to sort of formulate canceling to more of a Canadian model. And when I did that, my performance really went crazy. Um, but uh, at the time, so I'm, I'm working at home, I've got a small portfolio, I'm starting to grow this portfolio. And, um, you know, my, my dad, who is so anti-stock market, it was crazy. And he was convinced, you know, I'd, I'd left my, you know, nine to five job and um, had started trading stocks or just gambling. You know, yeah. gambling. Well, he thought it was just full of sharks and crooks and you name it, which, which it is. But, um, you know, I, I was making money and he couldn't believe it. So he said, well, listen, I'll, I'll give you $10,000. Do that for me. And, um, and I did. And he started making money. So the next thing happens is he's telling his, his friends and, and, you know, other members of the family. And before I knew it, I had like seven or eight accounts that I was I was trading for. And the, the deal was I would get a, a percentage of whatever the winnings were. Right. So I started opening up more and more of these accounts at this this brokerage firm and thinking, hey, this is great. I'm actually making money. And, you know, the, the, the world's perfect. I get a phone call from the brokerage firm saying uh, it was their compliance department saying, what are you doing? Are you licensed to do this? Well, I said, no, of course I'm not licensed to do this. I'm doing this, you know, on behalf of my family. I said, well, you, you can't do it if you're not licensed. So of course, next thing in my head was I'm going to go get licensed. So I became a broker and uh, 
of course, once you're a broker, you can't get a percentage of of the performance. <laughs> so my income went from you know way up here to way down here because I was just generating commission now. Um, so that's kind of and so I I got into the brokerage business that way. As a matter of fact, I really struggled to even get in because they were only hiring people with, with MBAs, and I found a little I'd almost say bucket shop now. It's not really around anymore, but they hired me because I phoned every day until they. And, until they finally, you know, got sick of me calling, and had me join, and um, and uh, I joined the firm. And what was interesting is I had developed this sort of strategy that was working, and I'm this young guy coming into this, you know, brokerage firm full of about a hundred different brokers. And I used to think that the brokerage industry was this, you know, this sort of gilded you know, doors and, you know, these are all the smart people and these are the guys that, you know, have studied this stuff and have a PhD in, in economics and you name it. Um, I got in there and I was blown away how chaotic and unprofessional and how poorly, <laughs> it, it was crazy. Um, I was actually the first person there to request um, financials. Like I would, um, at the time I was actually buying a lot of U.S. stocks and um, I would go to my boss and say, hey, look, I need to find out, I need to find uh, quarterly statements on this company. And they wouldn't know what to do. Like they had no idea what almost what that meant. Um, so at that time, this is how bad it was. If I wanted quarterly statements on a company in the U.S., they would have to uh, send a request and wait for it to be mailed in. Like it, literally mailed a set of financials. So I moved heaven and earth. The internet was just, you know, around at the time. And um, I moved heaven and earth to finally get an internet connection to the firm. And this way I could access financial statements over the internet. Um, and slowly, surely what, what started to happen is as I was doing this and I was finding these little companies, and this is at the early, early stage of the, the tech boom, I'd say early 90s for sure. Um, I... Uh, you know, others around me started to see what I was doing. And before you knew it, as soon as I would go and place an order, because at the time you'd have to go and run an order into the desk. And um, I would see uh, my order get placed. And immediately right after that, there'd be a bunch of other orders coming in from my firm. So somebody was, was sort of, you know, tailing me on everything I was doing. Over time, I got a bit of a reputation for having found these weird companies, but the, the, the performance we were generating was astronomical. It was I I can easily count in the hundreds how many stocks that we were buying that were going up four or five times in value over the course of a year. It was crazy. Yeah. So what what is the what is CanSlim's uh, what are the rules of CanSlim and how did you modify them for, for Canada? So I, I I can't remember them all because it's been a while since I've read the book. But you're you're looking at things like um, you know stocks hitting a 52 guy is is a real big uh, deal there. You want you want to buy hyper growth, so the 25 percent growth or higher, both in in revenues and earnings. Um, you, um, you you want to look for new things, new management, new products, new territories, new something. Um, you want to buy. You know, cancel them. They want to see very low institutional ownership. Um, that, that was something that was really novel to me. Um, same thing up in Canada. Um, so, I mean, and there's a few others, but the other ones I'd say are almost not as important. So in Canada, um, oh, the other, one of the big ones for canceling was you don't buy anything less than $10. Um, 
Well, in Canada at the time, there were probably only a dozen stocks that were trading over $10. And I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic here, but um, so I, so I, that was one of the big modifications is um, any price. For me, it was regardless of price, if it met the other criteria, you're, you're jumping on. Um, there's no institutional ownership in Canada at that time uh, until the stocks were getting into the sort of $100 million market cap and higher. But I was looking at everything sub $50 million. Um, so it, it, little nuances like that. So I, I didn't care if there's institutional ownership at all. Um, more times than not, there wasn't. Um, the price was the big one. I would look at a stock if it was at 50 cents. That didn't bother me at all. Um, they were looking for volume. It's, uh, you know, criteria. That was something that I didn't care about at all. The, the more illiquid, the better. Um, so it's just those kind of modifications. It wasn't dramatic, but it was um, things that are just a little bit more tailored to the Canadian side. Is the idea behind the absence of institutional ownership that they will buy in the future? So you're kind of front running the institution. That's exactly it. Um, so one of the benefits I had from um, you know being a broker was actually understanding the industry more than in any sort of tips on how to buy stocks. It was really understanding what motivates every component of sort of the brokerage or institutional industry. And, you know, the biggest you know, the biggest criteria when it comes to a lot of these funds is the size of the company. So, you know, if they're if they're managing a billion dollars, they're going to be it's very unlikely you're going to be buying a, you know, sub 50 million dollar market cap because it just you're never going to the numbers just don't match up to make it worth their while. Um, so what I noticed while I was doing a lot of uh, a lot of buying in, in, in the space was that um, these companies would sort of grow at a certain pace and there'd be very little interest until it just hit a certain market cap. And to, to this day, it's still a little bit like that. You know, you see the $50 million point and, and, and $100 million point, And as you go higher, you just see these different levels. And what I was noticing is this, as soon as a certain company met a certain market cap, you'd see a bunch of buying, you'd see a bunch of volume and the, the change in in the sort of activity around the stock, it was just so obvious. And then I was finding out, well, what was happening was it was hitting that criteria that some of these sort of micro cap funds were able to buy and they would buy because there was so few things they could buy. And, and you see this, this just rocket ship in share price where, you, you know, you, all of a sudden you go from, and you toil between 20 cents and a dollar. And then at a dollar, it goes like straight up to three and you're going, whoa, okay. So oh, I kept thinking, I just want to be a couple of steps, but uh, you know, in front of that, and, and that's what we started doing, and it, and it worked like a worked like a charm. I'm a little bit familiar with the uh, the share price idea as well, because in Australia, the listing mm -hmm. minimum is twenty cents, I think, and it's right. like if you come out at a dollar, you're really making a big statement about what you think your company's. You know, not it's silly because it's you can yeah. you can set it anywhere. Yeah. So what, what's the what's the minimum listing price in Canada and, and, and what what's the listing price in Canada? Yeah, so um, I mean, technically, well, five cents. Five cents would be the minimum listing price. Um, you don't really see too many companies get listed at, at five cents. Um, there, you know, you're going to see most of them somewhere between twenty cents and a dollar when they get listed here. Um, the the TSX exchange was sort of the the senior exchange in Canada that's, that's a little bit different animal and there's there's no not really a price requirement like there is on Nasdaq or some of the other exchanges but there is um, 
uh, you know, there, there is certain tiers and it almost depends on how frothy the market is. If the market's really frothy, you know, we, we've seen the bubble in sort of marijuana and blockchain and things like that. Um, you, you tend to see the price get, the, you know, IPO prices a little bit higher. Uh, when things are really slow, you're going to see them lower. But, you know, ultimately, it's all about market cap, right? So you invest publicly and privately? So, yeah, I mean, I, I've done a fair bit in the private space. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of agnostic. I, I, really, what I'm looking for is a certain criterion company and, of course, price. Um, what I've found over the last little while, quite frankly, is that I'm finding cheaper valuations in the public markets than I am in the private market. So, um, it, you know, if that's going to continue, I'm going to predominantly be investing in the in the in the public market. But um, you know, we, we've we've been involved in helping some companies go public that have sort of the criteria we look for. And uh, when when the public, when it's flipped around the other way, it's a, it's a great opportunity for arbitrage. You're finding a company that's growing at say 25% a year, um, and it's got a you know valuation of five times earnings. Um, you know, the market tends to give you almost at a minimum 10 times earnings. So there's an arbitrage there, right? Um, so we were seeing opportunities uh, a few years ago where you literally all you have to do is you take one of these private market valuations, you take it public, and there's your arbitrage. You're making money. But it's this weird dynamic right now where it's flipped around because of this crazy VC private money. Um, you're starting to see, you know, you're starting to see actually private equity coming into the microcap space because they're finding better deals in here, and, and you know, I'm seeing it. So. Do you, uh, so you're, you're, you're investing with a view to an IPO. Is that the idea? Yeah. So everything is still sort of levered off the public markets. Um, I, I, when I say I, and we, I sort of interchange it. I, um, we, we've got a bit of a network of investors now that kind of follow what we do or do what we do. And we try to spread as much sort of, um, opportunity around as we can, but, um, it, yeah, it's um, we we know the effort that it takes to take company public and and what it's what you sort of need to make it all work. Um, if we can bring that to the table, we will. Otherwise, we I, I prefer investing in public, public already public companies. Yeah. Can you talk about you've got two MDUTV and uh, yeah. Destiny yeah. Media? Can you talk about those two? companies sure sure so those are the two i'm willing to admit about there's you know there's, there's another private company that i was involved with um that uh I, i'd almost say was a disaster but it had a lot to do with timing so mdu tv um it was uh it was it was a startup actually so after i was in the uh, brokerage business um i actually got tired of the business because um i i I, I love my clients, but I hated having clients. It, it was a weird circumstance. My my personal portfolio was making me more money than my day to day job of being a broker. So I finally said, okay, this is not making a lot of sense. Um, plus, I was getting just a little tired of the day to day and and the issues around being a broker. So um, I I was asked to help on a startup. So. Um, I left. I decided to leave the business, um, and my my goal, my job was basically raise money because I'd been in the, the business. I was going to raise money for this little startup, uh, and what we were doing at the time was um, uh, it was really the advent of uh, satellite television as a replacement for cable TV in uh, in urban areas, right? So it, it predominantly satellite TV was going to be for rural areas. 
but we were we had a, a business model where we can come into a high rise um, or a large sort of residential complex and cable the unit for satellite TV and turn it into a mini cable franchise. So we we did that, and uh, you know, in Canada, the, the cable franchises were so dominant. And there was it, like the, the most hated companies in Canada were, were cable companies. And we had, uh, you know, we had this idea that we're going to sort of displace some of that business. And we were, you know, we, we set up set to do that. So we raised a bit of money privately um, and, um, and uh, you know, to start our business. And then we were approached by someone. And it wasn't me, but somebody else approached and said, well, why don't you go public? And. And we said, okay, well, yeah, let's let's go public. And it was just before the dot com or the tech boom, um, and uh, it just caught fire. Um, it was a little company that we started. I, I think we took it public at twenty five cents, and like within a year, the stock's at ten dollars. Wow! And um, but mind you, the the business was growing. I mean, I, I remember still sitting across from the uh the founder at my kitchen table and we we had actually sketched out the business plan so there's no employees we went from uh, zero employees to 150 employees in probably a year and a half the business just exploded um but it was also kind of pre-internet days so um so i was fortunate because i was able to see all the dynamics around a almost like a, a mini unicorn where we went from zero to 100 miles an hour in no time and um, and got all the benefits of that. Um, you know, management sort of took over. I was really redundant very quickly because they'd raised money and was, my, my expertise was pretty well useless at that point. Um, so I left that business and um, did very well by it and then started another company called Destiny, um, again, with a couple founders. My role was to help them raise money and sort of steward them around. But this time, we our, our eyes was really in going public as quick as we could, which we did. And you know, back in those days, my gosh, um, we, we'd still argue that we had the first streaming software platform in the world. Um, the, the founder had actually sent uh, a version of this little, it was that the founder was actually used to work at Electronic Arts and him and his partner had developed this ability to play video games uh, with each other remotely and be able to, to speak to each other while they're doing this. This was unheard of at the time. So we took this little bit of software and we said, well, we're going to change the world, right? We're going to be able to broadcast radio and TV and everything. And he came up with the idea that he was he would send a version of Microsoft to see if Microsoft had any interest. And he's actually, I think he still has it, but he's got a framed letter from one of the engineers at Microsoft saying, this is impossible. It's not possible to stream audio over the internet, right? Of course, about uh, six months later, Microsoft comes out, Real Networks comes out, and and that business goes absolutely crazy. These guys are, you know, we were left in the dust. But um, fortunately, we were sort of uh, pivoted, like like good startups do, and uh, the company's still around. But um, boy, we were at the heyday of, uh, of sort of streaming uh, business, and uh, with a little bit of luck, it would have been a lot different. Where's the stock price now? Uh, oh, I think about a dollar, um, you know, uh, it, it probably got enough to the equivalent of $20. I, I can't even, I don't even know if it's, uh, I can, uh, you know, I left it a long time ago as well. I went on to greener pastures. I think I've got a attention span disorder or whatever, <laughs> two to five years is about all I could last. So. 
Yeah, great story. So those are the two successes that I that I like to talk about. I learned a lot from them. That's probably the biggest thing that's that's happened to me. Um, but then there's a third one that uh, I don't I don't brag about, but it, it it's just as educational. It was um we we sort of put the band back together from the MDU days, and we had a different technology that would allow us to use the electrical system in a building as internet um, sort of your internet network, and uh, it was called broadband over power line. And uh, we put all the same sort of management pieces from MBU days, and we're going to go out and show the world how to properly do this. And that was 2007. So we had raised a whole bunch of money, and we needed to raise a whole bunch more. And, of course, this little thing called the financial crisis hit and uh, basically went to zero overnight because we couldn't raise any more money, which we had to, to keep the business going. Does the technology work? Oh, it works great. But um, I mean, now there's better technology. You know, you know, you know. Now you really want as much fiber as you can, and um, and um, the issues around that technology, um, it, it's it's been improved so much with with other technologies that, that it's pretty antiquated now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's very interesting. I, I've heard of that idea before, but I wasn't. Aware that, that was actually, I thought it was just one of those things that they used to raise money. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it works. Um, it, it, it's uh, it's it's amazing how fast technology advances, um, and you just don't know what's coming. But uh, fiber at that time was well, you're only going to lay fiber where you really need big traffic. You're gonna you're not going to use it, you know, close to the home. Of course, now we're seeing. As a matter of fact, another company I'm heavily invested in is doing fiber to the home. So um, there's, uh, you know, it, it changes so fast. That's one of the dangerous areas. You got to be on top of it. Otherwise you can get blown up pretty quick. I saw that a little bit in Australia. I worked in a telco that did dark fiber and they were doing fiber mm -hmm. to the, many times doing fiber to the node and it was unnecessary mm -hmm. to do it to the home because mm -hmm. even though they were using twisted pair coax for most, most things, the technology on twist was always getting better as well. So that was getting faster sure. and faster. So it just wasn't yeah. necessary to run the fiber all the way into the home, which is clearly like exponentially more expensive than just running to the node. It is, but you know what's happening is um, now whoever owns that last mile of fiber actually owns that customer. So um, especially in the UK, um, you're seeing they're just they're sort of tripping over themselves trying to deploy as much fiber right to the home because once you've captured that. I mean, th think of, you know, Netflix and everything that's going on right now, um, the amount of data that is being pummeled to, to the end consumer is massive. And it's, it's growing so fast that the, the good thing about fiber is you now, if you're going to improve on the last mile, you want it, you want it sort of that, that highway built as big as you can already. And that's the advantage fiber has over uh, fiber has other advantages over twisted pair. And some of it is just the maintenance cost is significantly lower. So there's all sorts of reasons. But um <laughs> Yeah, all sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, just let's go. Let's go back to uh, the way that you're investing now. Um, what's your What's your screening and search process? How are you finding these ideas? I, I saw in the note that you sent through to me. You read every single file. You read it. how many companies yeah. are listed in Canada? <laughs> Thousands. I, you know, I, um, I I've lost count of how many there are, but um, I mean, it doesn't. It, it sounds worse than it is. Um, I, I've been doing it for so many years that I can see a name right off the bat, and I'll know a fair deal about the company already. Um, but you know what I do is I take myself a cup of coffee or, or a beer, it depends on how the day is going, and uh, I'll um, I, I you know every day uh, we've got Cedar. You guys you know in the states it's Edgar, 
But CDAR is a repository of all the filings. So every day there's a set of CDAR filings. Um, I'll review the financials that are posted that day. And I mean, I'm quickly scanning, right? So I open up the file and uh, I'll notice pretty quickly if it's, you know, that 25% growth rate or not. And if it isn't, well, I'm on to the next one. So literally within 15 seconds, I can tell if I really even want to look any deeper. Um, so that's what I do. I do that every day. Um, you know, some days are heavier than other days, depending on time of the, the sort of quarter. Um, and then a couple times a year, what I'll do is I'll just review all of them. And the, the beauty is in this business, you don't need 100 uh, investments. You know, you got to find that one or two. Um, and if you find them early enough, the, the, that's it. That's So that's what I'm constantly looking for is that one or two that, that just, you know, fits the bill. Um, sometimes they don't quite fit all the criteria, so I'll put put it on a watch list, and I'll keep following until a few things come to place, um, and then I'm off to the races. The the one thing I'll note is that I, like I hate like not that I hate too strong a word, but um, I don't use any screening software. Um, the, the reason why I do it manually is because every now and then one you know I, I'm not always that crazy about the data that goes into these these screening software packages, um, but every once in a while one falls through the cracks. And that's the one you want, right? So if you're going to find that one that falls through the cracks, you got to do the work to go and find it. And, and Expel was an example. Expel was a weird little circumstance where it was actually Canadian listed company, but trading in U.S. dollars. So it had a dot U um, sort of suffix to the symbol. And um, and for whatever reason, it just didn't screen well. It didn't screen in in in, uh, in most screening packages. So those are a great example of if if I was doing it like everybody else was doing it. Uh, I would have missed a, an absolute beauty. So when you find an idea that's worth pursuing, how do you prove it up? How do you validate it? So, okay, so that's, yeah, a good question because, you, you know, just finding the financial criteria sort of gets me started. Um, now, a lot of times what will happen is if it, if it sort of meets the first three or four key pieces, um, I'll actually start buying it. And, um, and then I, I get a sense of liquidity. I get a sense of a little bit of market reaction. I, you know, I, I'm not super um, keen on technicals because some, so much of that with the liquid stocks can be influenced so easily. Um, but I will start to go through another set of process of, or sort of due diligence process. And that's where sort of my experience in, in the industry comes to bear. So I'll look at things like, you know, share structure, who owns the stock, how it was financed, who financed it. Um, who who are the significant shareholders? Um, you know, then, then you look at things like how's how's management compensating themselves? Um, how they've been with you know share rollbacks or share splits? I mean, there's a whole bunch of other factors, but they're they're not necessarily sort of quantitative. They're they're more qualitative. I'm going in and trying to I'm always trying to find a reason not to own the stock now, right? Um, and and the nice thing about owning a little bit is I. I Personally, I tend to do better due diligence once I own the stock than before I own it. So I want to, you know, I, I'm now more motivated to really go and find, you know, all, all the warts. Because a lot of these microcaps have a lot of warts on them. And I, I'm just trying to find every little bit of information I can. And um, and, and other things like, um, you know, a lot of times I've already established a pretty big position before I even talk to management. Um, when I do talk to management, some of the questions I ask are kind of, they find it odd, um, but I want to know how many people have called them, like how many investors call them, right? I, I've got this great story where I actually, um, I, I phoned this little tiny 
company and I uh, got the receptionist. And my question always is, hey, I, listen, I need, I'd like to talk to whoever handles your investor relations, right? So she said, okay, hold a minute. And um, she, it probably took her five minutes to get back. And she came back and said, I have no idea what you're asking me. <laughs> I have no idea who that would be. <laughs> so that got me excited, right? Um, I, I spoke with the CEO. Um, and I've got another gentleman that I work with that, um, that was helping me out in due diligence here. And he called as well. And we both called. And we were like the first two people that called him in like two years. And he was convinced that we were actually his competitor trying to find out about what, what he was doing. So, so when he find out when he finally found out that we weren't competitors and we were you know crazy little microcap investors, um, he really opened up and it was, it was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's what gets us excited when when you know you hear that you're the only one that's really looking at the company. Yeah. So when you find something, you've proved it up. You like the opportunity. Um, how do you think about sizing an initial position? How big do you want it to be in the portfolio? How many names have you got on at any one time? How do you think about that sort of stuff? So I, I think I take a, a different approach than a lot of other investors. I, I really believe that if you're if you're trying to create wealth, you you have to be concentrated. If you want to preserve wealth, you know you have to be diversified. So I'm still in in uh, in wealth creation mode. So I, I don't. There's no set number. Uh, that's kind of it. If I find something I really like and I continue to believe it's undervalued, and my modeling, my due diligence keeps proving that, I'll keep allocating capital to it until until something happens, either the model breaks down or the stock starts to go where it's supposed to. Um, at, at any one time, I'd say my, my sort of the bulk of my portfolio is probably made up, uh, you know, between five and eight names, but I might have a whole bunch of others that are sort of that small starter position where I'm just trying to, trying to see how much more capital they should, should sort of get. And it's the analogy I kind of use is, a, is like a, a sports team, a baseball or hockey team, where you want to keep your best players on the ice. You want, you want to keep, you know, give them as much, you know, time on the field as you can. And um, but you also want to keep watching who is on the bench that's looking good. You want to replace them with. So, so one, one of my sell criteria has less to do with what an individual company is doing and more with what other opportunities are presenting themselves. So all that sort of stuff comes together and it dictates how I make up the portfolio. I, I, I've had circumstances where, you know, one stock could be 60 to 70% of my portfolio and it doesn't flinch me in the least because um, I, I, you know, I truly have conviction in the business and the value and, um, and, you know, and, and prepared to, to prove it out. How do you know uh, when you've made a mistake and what, what do you do in those circumstances? I, I, I huddle up in the fetal position and cry myself <laughs> to sleep. <laughs> no, because, um, I mean, it happens more times than not. I, I mean, it's to be expected, especially in, in the sort of part of the market where I'm at. Um, you're going to have companies that completely just crap the bed. Um, you have to almost price that in to everything you're doing to begin with. So, um, more times than not, I know the company almost better than anybody else out there. So that's my advantage. I've got to see if there's some some little you know, headwind that's coming. I've got to see that in advance and I've got to be prepared for that. Um, so like, like anything, if, if I see something going wrong, I start to I start to exit the position. If I see things starting to turn around and right up again, then I'll, I, I might add to the position again. But look, I, I'm, if I'm wrong, I'm going to lose money. 
um, end of story. Um, so I, I just try to see it as early as possible and it sort of adjust the sales so that I can take it, you know, and do what I need to do to get out of it. Do you have any view yeah. on the uh, the strategy itself? Are there, are there, uh, I know you transition between private and public depending on sort of which is offering the better opportunity, but do you have a view on whether the, uh, the strategy is getting poorer? So, so you asked about the, the strategy, kind of when it works and when it doesn't work. Um, I, I noticed that it has, like, it's almost like it's cyclical. You know, um, this works really well when there's not a bunch of other, I'll call them bubbles, right? This didn't work well. In Canada, we had a, uh, you guys have down in the States as well, the, the big marijuana, you know, sort of craze for a while. Um, it's, it's a shiny object, right? All of a sudden, investors run from one thing that's working and run to the one that they think is working better. So they'll, they'll run off there. So the, the strategy as far as the performance side of it, the strategy doesn't work well when a lot of other things are working because capital just goes to where you know it wants to go. But the buying opportunities present themselves better in those times. Um, so, so you get those ebbs and flows all the time, right? There's always some new shiny object, so you've always got that. But um, what I've noticed over time, because I've been doing this for so long, um, it seemed a lot easier way back in the day because um, I guess it was a little more difficult to get access to information. I think now, um, you know, almost any investor has the same tools I've got. So they, they can get out there and find out about these companies at the same time I can. Um, so, so it's a little bit more competitive there. Um, but yeah, so it's so cyclical to some degree. Um, I think it's, you know, it's working now. Um, for me, it's not so much that I'm trying to predict what's going to happen in the space or, or that I really, um, it's, it's a real bottoms up approach where I look at every individual company on its own and say, okay, it's either, it's either cheap or it's not cheap. I'm buying it if it's cheap. If it's not cheap, I'm not buying it. And it doesn't matter what, what's happening or where we are in the cycle. It just, it's got to make sense. So I, I, I avoid market noise. I avoid trying to predict where the market's going. I have a very hard time trying to sort of pinpoint whether the market's too expensive or too cheap. Um, Everything is really an individual case by case basis. Do you have any preferred yeah. uh, industries or sectors or anything that you avoid? So, so yeah, I, things I avoid for sure. Like we stay out of the extraction business, so we we don't do anything in mining or you know um, oil and gas or anything like that. Um, we look for businesses that have some sort of repeatability. Um, so we've invested in everything from um, you know engineered wood products, software, biotech. Biotech's a too strong a word because that's that's tends to be a little bit too binary. Um, healthcare, you know, a lot of healthcare stuff. Um, and then, but then we're we're finding is that the best places are these obscure little, almost niche markets where um, where you know there's no real industry. It's just some company is developing something so new that it doesn't have an industry. I, you know, Expel is a great example. When I found it, I didn't even know this stuff existed. If, if you don't know, Expel, they manufacture paint protection film for your car, right? The first time I saw it, I, I'd never heard of this stuff before. So what industry is that? It's, you know, okay, it's kind of in the auto industry, but, you know, so anyways, it was bizarre. Um, and, and now it's, you know, it's a semi-big niche industry. Um, so I try not to get too caught up in what they do. I try to get more caught up in the numbers and, and have the numbers prove uh, the business out. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, if folks want to get in contact with you, Paul, what's the best way or follow along with what you're doing? How do they go about doing that? 
well, smallcapdiscoveries.com. Uh, that's our website. Um, really easiest way is just send me a, a, an email directly. Uh, they can send an email to paul at smallcapdiscoveries.com. Um, yeah, I mean, send, send an email. I, 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 I love to talk stock. I think that's one of the things that probably my wife you know, thinks I talk too much about. But um, So yeah, if anybody's got any questions, especially any questions around the microcap space in Canada, um, there's very few things or a few companies I don't at least have some knowledge about, but yeah, um, Paul at small cap discoveries. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I think it's at Paul Andreola. Um, that should, uh, should be able to find me there. Yeah. I'll, I'll link it up in the show notes. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Really appreciate the time. Uh, Paul okay. Andreola, small cap discoveries. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. We're clear, mate. That was so much fun. That was awesome. That was great. I love it. Love it. Love it. It's yeah. so funny. The last one I recorded was Cliff Asness from AQR. So it's just a total 180 from that, which is great. It's heavy. Uh, <laughs> That's, uh, it's, uh, it takes a lot to make the world go round for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. That'll be a, that'll be a fun one. So it'll come out um, Monday in a week. Monday week. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, just send me it and I'll, I'll fire it out to everyone I know as well. And so we do... Uh, we do the full podcast comes out kind of on a Sunday night. Uh, then we, we put the, and the YouTube video comes out on the Sunday night. And then on the Monday morning, we blast it out to, through the email and through Twitter. And we do, we just chop out interesting kind of exchanges and run yeah. that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So it should, cool. should get some good exposure out of it. And, uh, oh, fantastic. If you get any good opportunities or anything, let me know. Cause it'll, uh, I, I always, will. always want to know. Absolutely. No, it'd be great. Uh, we'd love to sort of, uh, keep in contact and, uh, and throw you ideas that uh, that might make sense. That was cool. Well, for, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. I love it. I love it. No, I appreciate it on my end as well. Thanks a lot, Tobias. Thanks, Paul. See you then. Okay, cheers. <laughs>